Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Um, but today we've got a little bit of a plan of what we want to do. So, uh, Justin, do you want to maybe get us started with that idea of what we're talking about today? So last week we had uh, talked about what it looks like to be members in a local church. And we emphasized this idea of the body and, uh, you know, the hand, you know, doesn't do the same thing that the foot does. Uh, Paul uses language like that in 1 Corinthians and Romans both. Uh, and so there's an advantage to being different in the body. But uh, we're told in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep, uh, to mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, so there's a, a care that we should be giving to each other in the body. And um, I think I think it'd be helpful for us to talk through how best we can as members of the body uh, show that kind of care for each other, whether it's in uh, challenging each other um, to grow, whether it's in uh, rebuking and sin and helping each other to repent, whether it's dealing with suffering, um, just counseling one another through the, the trials of life. Uh, there are lots of different ways that we can go about that. And I think a passage that Scott mentions as we were discussing what we might talk about uh, last week uh, was First Thessalonians 5. Scott, would you want to address First Thessalonians 5, 14 for us and kind of what you had in mind and how that's helpful? So one of the things is to realize different people need different things, just like as parents, when we're dealing with children, you know, sometimes they need encouragement, sometimes they need punishment, and we all need different things at different times. So here we have 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's the ESB. Some translations have the disorder. Uh, this is within the context where it's just talked about some people there that won't work. They're mooching off other people. They're busybodies. They've been corrected by Paul when he was there. They were corrected by him in the first epistle. They're being corrected again, not there to be. Uh, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And so part of it is realizing where somebody's at, which, you know, do they need, you know, do they need a firm hand? Do they need a hand up? Yeah, and there are a lot of different, um, you know, practical things I think that we could think about in, in dealing with that. First, it's really important to understand who is who, um, who is the idle or disorderly, who is the faint-hearted person, who is the weak person, and is the faint-hearted person actually a idle person disguising themselves as a faint-hearted person, or, 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 or vice versa, you know, um, that, that'll take some wisdom and some discernment. But the antidote for each one of those, I think, you know, Paul is absolutely right. If somebody's being disorderly, they need to be admonished or exhorted or rebuked. Um, they don't need encouragement to continue in their idleness. Um, but if somebody is legitimately just beaten down by life, which happens, um, sometimes you're just faint, you're just weak. They're one thing after another. Um, and you need some encouragement, you need some help. Um, what we want to try to do, I think, today is talk about, so, like, how do you actually do that? And I don't know if we'll have a perfect answer, at least I don't know if I'll have a perfect answer. Um, but using God's word to, to establish that is really important. But that's, I think, a good first step, making sure that you're aware and you really understand 
who is this person? Is this person actually faint-hearted or are they actually just weak or are they actually being idle? Go ahead, Scott. I just want to offer an illustration. Uh, I heard one time that the phrase in here, walking disorderly, uh, was a phrase that could be used in, in like a military sense. And so if you thought about some troops marching through some tough territory and you got one guy that's going to AWOL, you know, he's refusing orders, he's leaving with all the canteens or whatever, you're going to treat him differently than the guy who has twisted his ankle, uh, his, his, uh, or broke his toe, uh, or he's dehydrated, but he's trying, you know, he, he's got a humility and he's trying and he needs assistance. You're going to treat that guy much different than the fellow that's refusing to, to do his duty. Mm -hmm. Maybe something on that. If you, if you picture, um, the, the one who's walking disorderly, he's just, he's rebellious. Uh, he's not trying to keep in step with the military fashion. Uh, one who is in this passage of Christmas, only 514, one who is, uh, faint hearted. Someone who's just, he's trying, they've got the energy and the strength maybe to do it, but they don't have much motivation or hope. They don't feel like there's much hope in going forward, going on. Uh, they're just discouraged. You know, be, they need to be taught about Christ, taught about the, um, the motivation that we have in serving Jesus. And then those who are weak. And so if you imagine going to a track meet and there's someone who's got all the motivation in the world and they're not trying to be rebellious or distorted, they're not, they're just, they're tired, they're weak. Um, you don't, you know, yell at them, no, keep going as they break their ankle. <laughs> you, you go down and you wrap your arm around them and help them cross the finish line. Uh, and so, you know, to, to Jonathan's point, trying to discern who is who takes a lot of discernment. Uh, Proverbs 18, 13 comes to mind. It comes to mind a lot as I'm talking with people trying to help them. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If we try to tell people what we think they need to hear before we've actually heard them, uh, we just come across either cruel or foolish looking. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. You can't quite see what's going on under the surface, but a man of understanding will draw it out. So if, if we're patient, we ask good questions, we try to understand where they are, we come with them with humility and compassion, then we can begin to see what's going on inside a person and then offer them the best godly help and hope uh, that they need. Dan, you had a Well, you, you really um, brought it out with your passage from Proverbs uh, 18. I forget the verse, but that, that concept of acting before we ask, acting before we inquire and listen and understand, it, it, it's, it's absolutely vital that all of us remember the humility that's demanded out of us when we're interacting with each other. Um, I was just talking with someone the other day, talking about the, the issues in Romans 14, talking about the weaker Christian, and, and the irony is you're trying to figure out, wait, which one of us is the weaker Christian when we're having this conversation? Because we each think that the other person is the weaker Christian, and, and the real, the real uh, point and key idea with all this is we have to be so careful, um, not just careful that we don't step on toes, but rather careful that we don't... Um, behave uh, poorly, uh, with vanity, with selfishness, uh, that we injure others, or we encourage ugliness, because, because 
we have entered a situation with all the answers before even knowing what the questions are. And Jesus wants us to take the log out of our eye. He's always wanting us to look at our own eyes, look at ourselves in the mirror and examine ourselves according to the law as we are trying to help those who need who need help. And uh, that that's how we can be a genuine help to people. Yeah, so um, I, I think this will be okay. Um, one of the things that we wanna do is look at some examples of God helping people in certain situations. That's probably the best place to start in, in a discussion like this. Um, and it's really interesting that the first one that I want to bring up is uh, not an easy story. Um, it's not an easy thing that God does in helping somebody. Um, and both of these stories, and there might be a couple more that we're going to look at, um, are God helping one of his prophets process something that's really difficult. Um, and he approaches each prophet in kind of a different way. The, the one I want to look at is Jeremiah. So you can look at Jeremiah chapter 12. Um, Jeremiah is a really tough book, I think, in a lot of ways, um, just seeing the things that Jeremiah has to go through, the, the hardships that he faces, the rejection that he faces, some of the messages he gets from God. But I think especially so in Jeremiah 12, um, in verse one through four, Jeremiah is speaking. And from verse five through the end of the chapter, the Lord is responding to him. But Jeremiah speaking in verse one through four of Jeremiah 12 says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and you test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart like for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beast and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. So Jeremiah is kind of experiencing this moment. He's living at a time period where he's prophesying that God's people are going to be destroyed. Um, they've rebelled against God for long enough and God is bringing judgment on them. Uh, and basically there's nothing that they can do about it except accept the punishment and go off into slavery. Um, and that's not a very popular message. And Jeremiah is hated for it and, and attacked for it and rebuked for it and all kinds of different things for it. Um, and as he's going around being the spokesperson for God, like he's appointed to, he's realizing that uh, even still, the wicked are prospering. And Jeremiah is trying his best to live righteous and well and live for God. And his life is really hard. And that can be really frustrating, really discouraging. That's something that a lot of the psalmists will experience. I uh, think about like Asaph in Psalm 73. Uh, he's like, is this all, is this even worth it? I'm, I'm trying to stay pure, trying to stay holy. And it looks like it's not really paying off. And God's answer to Jeremiah in that moment of discouragement is, um, is kind of hard, I think. He, he starts off and he doesn't pull any punches. And, and the very first thing that the Lord says to Jeremiah in verse five, he says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land, you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Basically, it's kind of a poetic way of God saying, do you think that it's hard now? Just wait. It's going to get a lot more difficult. If you think racing against men is hard, wait until you have to race against horses. If you think it's hard to walk on, on even st stable ground, wait until you have to kind of trek through the thicket of the Jordan. 
um, things will get much more difficult before they get easier. Now, the Lord does come around later on in Jeremiah 12 and give Jeremiah at least a little bit of comforting message. Like at the very end, uh, he says in verse 15, uh, after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them each again into his heritage and each to his land and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. So God does in that section by talking about now there is some hope. Um, I am going to reestablish, I'm going to preserve the remnant, I'm going to make sure the wicked get their comeuppance, and I'm going to give the righteous their, their uh, vindication, and, and things are going to work out. But his opening kind of message to Jeremiah is, this isn't as bad as it's going to get. You have a lot more work, you have a lot harder things to deal with. Now, that's really curious and interesting, because the Lord chooses to do that. He doesn't always do that to somebody that's in discouragement, and we'll notice that um, maybe kind of how he approaches uh, Elijah in just a few minutes. It's kind of a slightly different approach, but he basically tells Jeremiah, yeah, I know life is hard and that's a result of sin. Um, and that's a lesson that you need to learn. Um, but the hope is still there if you continue persevering and sticking close to God. Um, so that's maybe sometimes an approach that we need to take. Now, I think there's a lot of wisdom and discretion that we need to use in, in kind of speaking like that to different people. The purpose is not just to, to plow people into the ground. And that's certainly not the Lord's purpose with Jeremiah. He's, he's trying to equip Jeremiah to be able to do what he needs to do. But he's very raw with Jeremiah and says, look, it's going to get a lot worse. And you need to, you need to realize that. Go ahead, Justin. Well, you mentioned Asaph earlier, and I think these two connect with Asaph and Jeremiah. Um, God just gets very real with him. And, and you might say, I was talking about uh, this passage with a friend of mine recently. It's like, basically, God was saying, suck it up, buttercup. I was like, well, that's <laughs> not quite what he's saying here. Um, but it may sound kind of harsh. Uh, but the truth is, reality uh, we, we, if we try to escape reality, we're not doing ourselves any favors. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, when they've gone through and they're teaching people about Jesus and they're making disciples, they, they intentionally go back around through those cities before they head back to Antioch. And so they strengthen them and they uh, encourage them, saying through many uh, tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. And by trying to soft sell trials, we're not helping the hurting. You know, we may want to comfort people and say, it'll get better. God was saying, dear Mike, it's going to get worse. And so we may want to offer that kind of hope to people when they're hurting. But the reality may be very different. So one thing that we want to make sure we don't do when we're helping the hurting is offer them false hope. Uh, if the hope is only going to be in God's wisdom. It's only going to be in his justice. And that, I think, is what uh, God is reminding Jemiah of here. Dan? Yeah, I, it it reminds me of something I'd heard. Uh, I can't remember the, the the exact line from a from the podcast I was listening to, but it was the idea is no matter how hard you run away from from reality, um, it's always going to catch up. And there's a lot of people that live in a false reality, or they live trying to avoid the pain that of 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 others or the mistakes that they've made, and those things always catch up to us. And uh, th this conversation between, between God and Jeremiah is a good example where God is going to help and God's going to protect and God is going to do things, but he's not going to pretend that reality isn't there as well. Jesus spoke the same way with his apostles and said, 
just if they, as they've come after me, they're going to come after you. It's going to be a sign that you are connected to me and there, I'm going to send you a helper and you're going to have good things, but these bad things will come after you. These bad people will come after you and, 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 uh, God doesn't hide, uh, from that reality. And I think that that's an important thing to realize in first Corinthians 10 verse 13, we have that really encouraging statement that God isn't going to let us be tempted beyond our ability. But that also means he's going to let us be tempted uh, within with, within our ability. He's going to he's going to allow those things to happen. And when someone is in the midst of real trouble, uh, real difficulties, um, often there are things that are out of our control, whether it's job and money and socio socioeconomic situations. Maybe you're in a family and the family is abusive, whether physically or verbally or just the, the, the controlling nature that, that goes on between families. It might be in-laws. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the same house. Uh, we, it's easy to find ourselves in genuinely troubling and disturbing or hard to handle situations. And we need to uh, be able to listen to people and kind of like how God admitted to Jeremiah, yes, this is bad. And then God, who knew what was going to happen, is going to get worse. I don't know if that's the answer that we need to tell people, but we need to respond in that same way and say, yes, this is bad. This is, this is absolutely bad. Uh, when we point them to passages like God is never going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to do, I think an important idea that we can add to this, and I, I learned this from a good friend of mine, is that we might be only able to endure this uh, because God is the one carrying us through. We don't bootstrap our way through it. Uh, so it's not that I'm going to take joy in the fact that, that I am suffering or someone I know is suffering. But if the only way I or you can survive this terrible difficulty, if not persecution, is by clinging to God that much more, then that is the fruit that God wants us to glean from that. Um, we're nearly dead, we're depressed, we're sorrowful, we don't have the energy to do what we want to do, barely have enough energy to do what we need to do, but we're clinging to Jesus that much more because he's the only one that can carry this load. Uh, that's going to result in something that is, that is worthwhile on the other side. Maybe we could talk about, we'll look at 1 Kings 19 as a second and the example of Elijah. Um, Maybe we could talk about the different ways we suffer. And I think there are essentially two ways, and maybe you can add to this uh, if you think otherwise, but there's the suffering that we take on ourselves when we sin. Um, and that's to be expected. You know, we, we should repent of that. And sometimes there are still consequences that go with that. Uh, for example, when David sins in Second Samuel, there are consequences that he suffers, that other people suffer because of his sin. And just, just because I repent and just because I'm forgiven doesn't necessarily take away the consequences, the suffering that I incur because of that. But there's also, there's also just the suffering that we receive in life just because we're, we live in a broken world. And it may be that I've not done anything wrong, but others are doing wrong to me, or I just live in a wrong environment and I can't always escape that situation. And I think Elijah, the Tishbite, First Kings 19, is a good example of that. Now, he's going to respond to this uh, suffering in a, in a way that's going to require correction. 
Um, but the way God goes about that correction, I think is so helpful. If someone's suffering, if someone's faint-hearted, like we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, God is so patient. Um, and what we want to learn to do is try to go about this the way God does. Like in Romans 15, 14, we're, we're told that if we're full of knowledge, we're full of truth, full of God's grace, then we can counsel one another. We can admonish and instruct and encourage one another, Romans 15, 14. So in 1 Kings 19, um, you guys remember kind of where Elijah's coming from when we start 1 Kings 19? He's been having the, all the years conflict with um, Ahab uh, and uh, his great effort to help the people has brought on a drought and uh, he's public enemy number one. And then he goes to battle with the, with the false God and, and has a victory uh, on the top of a mountain. And it's like literally a mountaintop experience, right? Like he has been in hiding, he's been down in the valley, he's been in this barren land and then now he's on the mountain and god gives great victory he is he actually outruns a chariot in first kings 18 he's just so excited with how awesome god has been in, in showing that he alone is god first kings 19 starts in this really uh, strange way where jezebel says she's going to kill elijah she's going to hunt him down and verse three he's afraid and he runs for his life uh, and he actually leaves behind his servant. And there are kind of three things happening inside Elijah at this point. And again, it's just it's strange because you think, look, Elijah, come on. God just sent fire down from heaven. Why are you afraid of this woman? Uh, but he is. And I, I imagine I would be too. You know, she's killed a lot of prophets. And so he's fearful is the first thing. Uh, his fears are legitimate. I think that's important when we're looking at people who are suffering and we're trying to help them. We don't necessarily want to delegitimize their fears. We want to talk about the reality of their fears. Um, it's not the whole story, but it's something to think about. If someone's suffering because they've lost a loved one, they're sick with some disease that they're not going to be cured from until the resurrection. You know, there's something going on in their life they can't escape. To try to uh, belittle those things, uh, to treat them as though they're not significant, doesn't show much compassion. Elijah's afraid and has reason to be afraid. He's also alone. Uh, if you look at verse three, uh, but it's funny, in 1 Kings 19, verse three, why is Elijah alone? He's going to say later he's alone. I alone am left. But why is Elijah alone here? He kind of forced himself into solitude. He, he leaves his servant and then goes on by himself. So it's kind of a, uh, a purposeful loneliness. You ever noticed that people who are hurting sometimes like almost refuse comfort because they just want to be alone and that's natural maybe you felt that way too uh you just you want to go off by yourself and deal with it quietly i think we see jesus doing that to some degree uh when he hears that john the baptist has been killed he goes off by himself he pulls the disciples away uh, of course the crowd follows him <laughs> he's got to make an about face with his plans but elijah kind of complains to God that he's alone, but he forces his isolation. There's something there. And then he just feels absolutely overwhelmed. You can hear it in his voice. Uh, he thinks it would have been better if he had died. He's no better than his father's. He asks God to actually take his life away. Um, just looking at 1 Kings 19, how about we read um, verse 5 through 8? One of you guys want to read that? I can do that. 
And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. Uh, so what is God's first response to Elijah's fear and isolation and just his, his hurt, his suffering? Makes him a meal. <laughs> Yeah, and, and encourages him to take a nap. <laughs> um, that may seem kind of silly, and I've heard people misuse this passage and, and say, look, sometimes we just need a snack and a nap. Uh, that's divine wisdom there. Uh, that may be true, especially if you're dealing with little ones and their suffering. Um, but I think this is, this is real. Um, the Bible deals with a God who cares about our person, our physical person, not just spiritual, like we are whole human beings. And so any kind of comfort that we give people uh, biblically needs to deal with the whole person. And so God says, Elijah's tired. Elijah is weak. The journey is too great for him. And so he does provide him physical sustenance. And there may be times where people are suffering and we can offer a physical help that can take some of that burden off of them. Uh, and it may be that they're suffering because of temptation. Well, maybe I can help them get in situations, physical situations, that are going to help move some of these temptations. So sometimes just dealing with the physical problems of life is a great way to comfort and help people. Um, now, he moves on from here, uh, and God actually asks Elijah twice. Elijah makes his way down to Horeb, goes into a cave, and he goes just as, as low down as you can get physically, like topographically. He's just literally depressed and god asks him twice both in verse 9 and verse 13 what are you doing here elijah i think it's just a fantastic question um what do you think god's getting at when he asks him what are you doing here yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of genesis 3 um, the same approach that he has to Adam and Eve, um, where he calls out to, to Adam and says, where are you? Um, I don't think it's because God wanted to like, like, I don't know, what's this answer? Tell me, <laughs> you know, Elijah, why are you here? Adam, where are you? I can't find you. It, I think the, the idea is God knows the answer to that, but he wants Elijah to think about it himself. Um, like think, think really clearly and long and hard about what got you here. <laughs> um and what your purpose in being here is and I, I want you to think through um this type of thing and uh elijah's response at least his first response is uh i think maybe the reason why god asks him again <laughs> um because elijah doesn't seem to think through it very clearly and god says why don't you answer one more time <laughs> um what are you really doing here so. yeah i think it's excellent is sometimes we don't think about what we're thinking about we just sort of have our own inner narrative about our problems and we're suffering and we add to our suffering with your thinking. And so by God asking Elijah this question, he's inviting him to, to really process his response to his situation. Maybe one more thing that God's doing here is he's helping Elijah to trust that God cares about what Elijah's thinking about. You know, God doesn't have to ask this question. He already knows the answer. 
but by asking the question, he communicates that he's interested in what's going on inside Elijah. And when we ask people what they're going through, we can show them that we're interested. Uh, we can show them that uh, God's interested by taking them to passages like this, where God cares about what's going on inside people. God's not just interested in our behavior only. Uh, he cares about our emotions. He cares about the way we respond, uh, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. Uh, so it's important to, to see a God who is interested in who we really are, not just in what we do. He's interested in the servant, not just the service. Now, the next thing he does in between the two questions in verse 9 and then in verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? Um, somebody want to read 10 through 13? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You say through 15? That's good right there. So, thank you. Uh, best I can make out in this section, what God's doing for Elijah is he is providing a presentation of his power, of his character. Um, that's gotta be part of the comfort and counsel that we give to people, is we remind people of who God is. It's actually the kind of comfort, I think, that Jesus offered John the Baptist uh, before he was killed. Remember, John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, uh, you know, are you the one or are we waiting for another? And Jesus says, go back and tell him all the things that you've seen. And so it's a fulfillment of prophecy, but it's also a demonstration of Jesus' power and his character. And that's supposed to be the comfort that John the Baptist needs. So we see that here with Elijah is God's showing him the wind, the fire, and the character perhaps in the whisper, the wind, like a you know, little small voice. Um, God is a great, powerful, awesome, mighty God. And that comforts us, you know, when we're being chased down by an angry queen who wants to kill us. Um, but he's also a compassionate God who speaks to us uh, who wants a relationship with us, who knows how to get down on our level. So so coming face-to-face -face with a great God who loves us and who has the power to help us, that can be a huge comfort to people. Well, anything else you guys see there? That's... Scott, your mic is muted. Sorry. Uh, going back to um, mentioning at least two types of suffering, and I think we can put a third there too. So ever since the fall, when man is subjected to thorns and thistles and death, there's this all sorts of things. You know, we got hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, mosquitoes, uh, this life hurts. Uh, then there's the sins of others. And then there's the sins we've committed. 
So let's just throw three deaths out there to show the three different types of suffering. The penitent thief on the cross. He knows why he's being crucified. You know, I, I did this, I deserve this. There's Stephen. He's being killed because of the unrepentance and the sin of the people he's trying to preach to. And then there's Dorcas. She just dies. You know, it, it, it's part of life and we all will. Mm -hmm. Right, so we're looking at the different things that Elijah said right here. It's, you know, what category do you put it in? And it may be something of all of that, uh, right? And, and, you know, is, is he sinning here? No, but he's struggling with his response to some of that suffering. Uh, and, and that's, we, we make our own suffering worse when we respond to hurt and pain with a rejection of God and his purpose for us. So thinking, thinking through those categories uh, can really help us. Just, just finally, two more things here in 1 Kings 19. Um, God responds to Elijah, uh, his question again, and he gives Elijah a job to do. Um, one of the best ways you can respond to our hurt and our suffering is to remember that God has a purpose for us, and we're happiest when we're doing what we were made to do. Uh, when we're fulfilling God's design, and we're serving him. Um, so he, he sends Elijah back, kind of kind of like a Jeremiah 12, you know, suck it up, buttercup, except not that. <laughs> but he just say, look, you go back and do this work. Uh, and then finally, kind of the fifth thing, so we've seen God's constant comfort, caring for Elijah on this journey, his patient understanding, number two, uh, this kind of divine presentation of his power and his character, his, his, his mission, divine mission, number four, and then finally this godly companionship. He, he assigns Elijah a helper, Elisha. And sometimes one of the things that we, again, when we suffer, we want to pull back and isolate ourselves because it just hurts to be with other people sometimes who don't understand. But 1 Corinthians 10, that uh, Dan mentioned already, part of the, the temptation is to think, I'm alone in my suffering. Nobody else understands what I'm going through. He actually says that these, these trials are common. Like people suffer this all the time. And so to surround yourself with other people who are seeking God and seeking to do his will can be a huge comfort. And so assigning Elijah a companion who's going to help him and serve him, uh, we, need, we need to not withdraw from people when we're suffering. We need to push ourselves to be with others who are suffering. Uh, so first Kings 19, super helpful uh, when we either we're counseling ourselves or maybe we're trying to help others uh, who are going through suffering. Cool. Uh, I want to talk about kind of backtrack all the way back to, to first Thessalonians 5:14, where the, the first thing that's kind of mentioned there is admonishing the idle or admonishing the disorderly, um, exhorting the disorderly is maybe another idea of, of looking at that. So that there are helpful things that we can do for people that are weak, faint-hearted, really struggling, really beaten down. Sometimes some of the people that we need to help are people that are just being rebellious, um, and they need help too, but they need a different kind of help. Um, and I'm not so good at that myself, but I like Nehemiah as an example of that. Um, I really look up to the character of Nehemiah in a lot of ways. Uh, he's a really incredible person to study about and his life and his dedication to the Lord. But at the end of his book in Nehemiah 10, 
he has gotten the people really with the help of Ezra and some other leaders to really rally together and dedicate themselves again to following God. And so like in chapter eight, nine, and 10, the, the people have confessed their sins. They've really dedicated themselves to studying God's law. They've started to discover some things that they didn't really know they should have been doing, and they want to start doing those again. And so in chapter 10, they kind of make a, a written vow, and they all sign it, and they all say, here's what we're going to do from here on out. And one of the things that they do in chapter 10 in verse 31 is they say, if the peoples of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops on the seventh year and the, uh, and the exaction of every debt. So they, they make it very clear, we're going to keep the Sabbath, which was a law that God had told them to do. And they say, we're, we're not going to make any exceptions. It doesn't matter if people come and try to sell it to us, we're not going to do it. Well, that's great. They, they dedicate themselves to do what God said. And then Nehemiah leaves for a period of time. He goes back to the king in Persia and he, he serves him the king a little bit more. And then he returns to Jerusalem in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, he realizes um, things are not going like how the people promised that they would go. And they've broken almost every promise that they said that they would keep in chapter 10 and chapter 13. But they specifically break their Sabbath promise. So in, in Nehemiah 13, in verse 15, it says, in those days, I saw in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. Uh, Tyrenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by, profa by profaning the Sabbath. Um, and that's right in the middle of a story where there's really kind of four big stories that happen in chapter 13, where Nehemiah has these really strong confrontations, which each, each of the people that are breaking their commitment. And I think that's just a, a valuable lesson. I don't know if there's anything really deep to learn from that other than um, when we see our brothers and sisters that aren't doing what they promised that they would do, we need to be courageous enough to confront them with God's word about that um, and, and tell them, you swore, you, you promised to God that you would give your life to him and do these things. And you're not doing that now. And God will respond with wrath. And I know that you know that. And I know that, and you need to change. That's not an easy conversation to have. That's not an easy thing to do, but we need to do that. And man, it really stresses Jeremiah or uh, Nehemiah out whenever Nehemiah is doing that. I don't think he enjoys doing that. He has a really hard time doing that. And he has some harder confrontations than that Sabbath day confrontation, but he does it, I think, because he loves the people and he loves the Lord. Um, and sometimes that's the help that we need to do. Again, that's probably not the response we need to have to somebody who's really struggling, really faint-hearted, really weak. But if somebody's being rebellious and they know better, they need a they need a harsh rebuke, like what Nehemiah gives. Go ahead, Justin. There have been times I've been afraid to do that, um, but I've been surprised how often people are receptive to, to being rebuked like that. Um, when people people are not humble. People are prideful and they don't want to hear it. It doesn't matter what you say. But when people are and they want to do well, you've been surprised. People 
people appreciate just being told straight up is what you've done. And I appreciate you making the point about the vow. I remember hearing uh, a brother preach about marriage and he was sharing a story. He hadn't been a Christian, you know, uh, very long before he got married. And so following Christ was something very new to him. He had a lot of bad habits. He was trying to break, bring up the old man. And so after the wedding, someone approached him and said, I heard what you said up there. And he thought, oh man, what, what did I say? Because uh, language was something he had a problem with. He thought maybe I accidentally, you know, cursed or something when I was up there. Uh, he said, no, I heard what you said. You made some promises up there. And I'm going to hold you to it. I, that idea of being a witness to someone's vows and as Christians, you know, we're, we're being a witness to each other's promises to follow Jesus. I think that idea that Nehemiah is holding them to their commitment. That's why we get together. That's why we spend time together as Christians. We're helping each other hold to our commitments to Christ. And if you see somebody not holding those commitments, we're not doing them any favors by acting as though they are. Uh, Scott, you had something from Paul you wanted to share. Your mic, Scott. Sorry, I'm going to air this little noisy, so I keep cutting it off. Sorry. Um, I had a conversation with a friend a little while back, and I had to come down really hard on him because uh, of a long-standing problem, his attitude towards it. And recently, he came up, and he was just—he just looked so much more at peace and so much happier. And he was—he was just thanking me, you know, for for. Uh, for that kind of conversation. Uh, and that I'd like to come back and finish it with uh, Thessalonians where we started because it ties into this. Um, here's a principle from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10. It says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding or a wise man than a hundred blows into a fool. So here you've got a fool and they beat him a hundred times and he's still not getting it. And a wise man, you say, and he's got it. So we have an expression that represents that same idea. We say a word to the wise is sufficient. And so let's just close out and notice how Paul dealt with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonian church was a great church, but we know from first and second Thessalonians that there was a, a group of people in there that weren't working, that didn't want to work, that were just being lazy and, and idle and not responsible. Now, did Paul start, he's going to end with telling the congregation to have nothing to do with them, so they may be ashamed, but do admonish them as brethren, but they were to be cut off. Is that where Paul started with the Thessalonians? Where did he start with them? In 1 Thessalonians 5, he set an example. He could have gone there and had that church support him, but he knew there were some lazy people in there just looking for other people to take care of them. So he, for, he gave up that right, and he talks about, I labored with my hands, and I was setting an example. Plus, he talked. He said, even while I was with you, I said, if a man won't work, neither shall he. So he taught the principle and he lived it, and he actually sacrificed to help set an example for them. Would have been great if they'd been wise and that did it, but it didn't. So when he writes First Thessalonians, what does he do? He tells them, be dependent on no one, 
you know, uh, work, take care of yourself so that you're not living lives unseemly before the world. Would have been nice if two admonitions had done the job. It didn't. So you get to chapter three uh, of Second Thessalonians, and he has to ratchet it up. And that's a good lesson for us to remember. Don't assume that somebody needs to be, you know, clobbered right off the bat. Uh, a word of the wise may do it. But you know what? If if a gentle word didn't do it, maybe they need more. And if that doesn't do it, maybe they need more. Yeah. All right, anything else you guys would uh, like to say before we wrap up? All right, uh, go ahead, Justin. Just, just one final thought here. Um, I, I appreciate all of the comments and thoughts we've shared today. And the emphasis has been on how has the scripture taught us to help each other? And there are times when Christians are suffering or going through difficulties and we may think, I don't know how to help. God, God is content to use weak, um, helpless individuals to help the weak and helpless. You know, I can't do it apart from his strength, but by God's wisdom, by God's grace, I can help people. Uh, and so it's not for the professionals. It's not for the, uh, the leaders only. There are too many hurting, struggling Christians. We all have a part to play in this, and that's the role of the body, to care for other members of the body to God's glory. Uh, so that we all serve Christ and look more and more like him each day. So uh, I don't know. I'm sure we all know someone who needs help. And so I hope that the things we've shared here just kind of encourage you to realize that God's given you the tools you need to, to be helpful. Amen. Yeah, so we'll close again with, with Paul's words. First, or First Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all of them. Um, so thank you all for joining us today in our discussion. Again, we want to remind you, if you have any questions or comments about what we've discussed today or any other topics you'd like us to discuss um, from the Bible, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv, and we'd be happy to talk about those in our future shows. But that's all we have for today, and so we'll plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.